We're on the uh, authority of Scripture, part two. Um, quick question, anyone recognize that painting on the screen back there? You know what it is of? Who is the man preaching? You're familiar with this, this painting here? It's one of my uh, favorite paintings that sort of describe this idea of the, the authority of Scripture. That's John Knox, um, a Scottish reformer before the, the lords of the congregation um, in June 1559, and it's just a really beautiful portrait of the idea of the authority of Scripture. So you see him up there um, with the Bible and the, uh, the Catholic um, cardinals and people on the floor, and uh, um, it's one of the pictures that came in my mind when I was preparing this, uh, this lesson there. So we come to week four in our study of systematic theology, um, and we're beginning with this study of the doctrine of Scripture, bibliology. Um, we've said that the scriptures are essential if we're going to construct a theology that is true, they're, they're, they're accurate, they're pleasing to God. The scriptures are essential for theology because of what we learned um, in week one of our study of bibliology, the necessity of scripture, right? Without the Bible, we are left in the dark of our depravity. We're left in the dark of our finitude. We're finite, We can know very little about God, man, redemption, this world, who we are, if God did not give us the Bible. So the Bible must be the source from which we derive our theology. Then last week, uh, we began to study this topic of the authority of Scripture. Um, Scriptures are not only important because they're necessary, they're important because they're authoritative. Um, We must treat the Bible in the way the Bible wants to be treated, in other words. Um, The Bible has a lot to tell us about many things, but first, it has a lot to tell us about itself. And oftentimes, people get off track not simply because they neglect the Bible. Oftentimes, they do not neglect the Bible. They use it, but they begin with wrong presuppositions. They begin with wrong starting places in their recognition of what the Bible is is. They deny its authority one way or the other, and that's the foundation. The foundation is wrong, and that leads to wrong theology in every direction. So we're beginning here. What is the Bible? What does it claim for itself? Thank you, Steve. Um, You do. What does it claim for itself? Um, And then, once we get that foundation, then we'll be ready to construct the rest of our theology. So question for you, why is it authoritative? What did we say last week? We, we said there's two reasons. Last week we gave reason one. This week we'll give reason two. What did we say last week? Why is it authoritative? It is God's word. It is inspired, right? So that's what we did last week. We talked about the inspiration of Scripture. And we used two fancy uh, theological words. Do you remember what they are? To describe inspiration? First one started with a P, end it ended in linary. <laughs> Plenary, good. What did that mean? The entirety, excellent. So scripture in its entirety, down to its very individual parts, is inspired. The entirety of scripture, the plenary inspiration of the Bible. What was the other word? Verbal. What does that mean? It's verbally inspired. Every word. word. Good. 
So God did not just inspire ideas or thoughts. He didn't just inspire the authors. He inspired every word of the Bible that the authors composed. Um, Inspiration is plenary and it is verbal. We also said last week that the Bible was written by real people. It's 100% divine, and it's also 100% human. It's written by real people with real-life experiences, um, real emotions, real um, backgrounds, and and all kinds of things. Um, And we said that's important for a number of, of reasons. God did not just simply dictate to human authors who wrote down everything he said. Sometimes he did that. But oftentimes, John... David, Luke, Paul, they simply wrote their own words. And yet, conscious of the fact that they were being moved by, led by, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, such that whatever they wrote is exactly what God desired them to write. And we said last week that we come to one of those those walls of worship where there's a mystery here. How did that happen? And we're not given any more information. Our posture is to bow down and and worship and accept it um, as it is. So that means that if you get the intent of the human author correct, you get God's intent correct. They're they're inseparable. The Bible is divine, it's inspired, and it's written by human people, and those are um, inseparable. So that's number one. Last week was the authority of Scripture because it is inspired. So you can look at this little diagram here. Why is it authoritative? Because it is inspired. Well, this week we're going to give number two. Why else is the Bible authoritative? Um, without cheating, if you haven't already, what do you think is the uh, other reason? If you've looked, that's okay too. Why are the scriptures authoritative? Anyone? Because they're what? They're inerrant. Excellent. The Bible, Scripture, is authoritative because it is inerrant and infallible. That is, it perfectly aligns with reality. What is really there, it perfectly reflects it and gives it to us. Now, it doesn't reveal everything that could possibly be known, right? Can you imagine the volumes and volumes of information? It's not doing that. It's not aiming to do that. But what it does give to us, it gives to us what we need to know, and whatever it gives to us, we can know not comprehensively, but we can know truly and accurately. That's what we're talking about in the inerrancy and the infallibility of, of Scripture. So the Bible is authoritative because it gives us absolute truth about reality, truth by which we measure everything else. It's the, the lenses through which we assess and, and view all of life. But it can only be this, this truth, this standard of truth, if its individual contents are true and accurate and reliable. It cannot be truth unless it is true. This is what Francis Schaeffer called its true truth. It's not just truth, but it's truth because it is true in every every bit um, of its content. This is the doctrine of inerrancy or infallibility. That's what we're going to talk about this evening. So to get us going, let me, let me show you this diagram again. We said inspiration 
leads to authority, right? The Bible's authoritative because it's inspired. Our point tonight is inerrancy is also a reason for its authority. What I want to look here really quickly is the relationship between inspiration and inerrancy. The scripture is not only authoritative because it is inerrant, it is inerrant because it is inspired. See, that inspiration is the reason for its authority, and it's the reason for its inerrancy, which is also a reason for its authority. If we've concluded that the Bible is the Word of God down to the very Word, that was last week, then we must conclude that it is inerrant. Well, why? Because God is true, and His words, then, must be true. So where do errors come from? I think there's two basic sources. What do you think? All right, interpretations, like a, a, a misinterpretation, right? Good. So you could call that maybe uh, ignorance, okay? Good. So errors might come from ignorance. Yep. Where else might errors come from? Just in human life. I'm not even talking about the Bible here. Well, just in, in the limitations of man. Mm-hmm. Yep, so we're, we're, we're finite, right? People are finite, um, and often we have what's called human error. It's owing to ignorance, okay? Good. Where else does error come from? Yes, Ed. Okay, good. Good, yep. We begin with the wrong starting point. Excellent. Good. Anything else? Where do errors come from? Again, just think in general um, life. Okay, desires our heart, they're deceitful. Good, good. And I think that gets on what, what, where, I'm, where I'm heading. I think there's two basic categories. There's ignorance, and then there's deceit. Generally, if you boil it down, errors come from where? I didn't know, and I said something, and I, or I did know, and I said it, and I, and I misled. So either deceit or, or ignorance. So before we even look at the Bible itself, what it, what it claims... Um, the inerrancy of Scripture really can be logically deduced from the fact that the Bible is God's Word. If it did contain error, then we must conclude that either God has lied to us or that He was ignorant or mistaken. You see how these relate? If you're going to claim that the Bible is God's Word, which you should, as we saw last week, then you have to claim this as well. Um, but God is not a liar, and God is not ignorant of anything. Um, so I want you to just feel what's at stake in this, in this doctrine as we, as we get started. The very character of God, the very truth that the Bible is indeed his, his word. If we charge it with error, we must conclude that God is ignorant, God is deceitful, or the Bible is not his word. You can't have it any other, other way. Um, 
How many in here have heard of the 1978 Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy? Anyone? A few hands. Okay. It was a statement drafted by some evangelical leaders like R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, Roger Nicole, Norm Geisler. In order to, to counter this drift that was taking place in the church um, the, in the 20th century, really coming after this doctrine of inerrancy, claiming there, there's errors in the, in the text of Scripture. Since then, this statement's really served as an important statement just for the church to codify what we, what we believe about this doctrine. So throughout this study, I'm going to make references to this, this statement. I, I've printed out, a, I think, 15 copies. If you would like one, take home. I can give it to you. So let me give you uh, two quotations here from it. Um, why is this doctrine important? Listen to the uh, Chicago statement here on biblical inerrancy. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired. If this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. It's a serious doctrine. Next. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences to both the individual and to the church. This is an important doctrine. It's fundamental for our understanding of the authority of Scripture. It's not a new doctrine. It wasn't invented by 20th century fundamentalists. The church has always believed this. The church has always, for its history, recognized this. So any questions before we dive into our... Study. I might answer your questions when we get going, but anything? If you have anything, please feel free to interrupt me. Raise your hand. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's important to put that in there because when you're stressing how important this is, if we're not careful, we can begin to add things to the requirements for salvation that the Bible doesn't add, right? So this is a massive doctrine, very important. Um, and if you get it wrong, you might get the gospel wrong. Um, but it is not uh, an essential component of the gospel per se, right? Repent and believe. You must believe Christ is Lord. He died for your sins. Uh, as a substitute, sacrifice rose three days. In repentance and faith, you believe him as Lord. You bow to him, you'll be saved, right? Um, so we want to be careful we don't add things that are required for salvation. At the same time, it's still a massive doctrine, and it can affect the gospel down the road. Does that make sense? Okay, good question. Anything else? All right, let's move on. Um, I want to give you some definitions here as we we begin. Um, I want to ask, what does the Bible claim for itself? What do we mean by inerrancy? What do we mean by infallibility? I'll give you a couple definitions to, to get us started. John Frame says inerrancy means propositional truth. 
To say that a sentence is inerrant is simply to say that it is true, as opposed to false. To say the Bible is inerrant is simply to say that it contains no false assertions. Wayne Grudem, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts, that's important, we'll come back to that in a minute, in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Chicago Statement here says, we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. So that is inerrancy. What about infallibility? The word infallible simply means that it is not able to err. Right? So you hear that in the word, infallible. It's not able. So inerrancy talked about its content. Infallibility talks about its ability, right, or its potential. Now, sometimes this word infallibility is used as a weaker term uh, by especially the liberal scholars out there. They, they'll, they'll say the Bible is infallible, but it's not inerrant. Um, they'll say it may contain some errors, but it's ultimately infallible for the real things that matter. You know, the spiritual things um, the Bible's really concerned about. That's not only false, as we're going to see as we go through this, but it's a a contradiction of of terms. Um, Infallibility and inerrancy, they're distinct, but but you can't separate them. Okay, so a fallible person can say a true statement. So is anyone in here fallible? Anyone? I'm fallible. But if I said, my name is Michael Laurie, that's a true statement, right? I say, I have two children. I have blue eyes. I'm fallible. And yet, fallible people can sometimes speak true statements. But it does not work the other way around. Um, Someone or something that is um, infallible, it's impossible. They cannot make an error. The basic meaning of infallible means it cannot be an error. In this way, I think infallible is actually a stronger term than inerrant. It doesn't contain, and it cannot contain error. John Frame summarizes this as well. He says, to say a text is inerrant is to say there are no errors in it. To say it is infallible is to say there can be no errors in it. It's impossible for the text to contain errors. It is inerrant because it is infallible. There are no errors because there can be no errors in divine speech. Before we go on, I want to emphasize one more thing. Um, when we speak of inerrancy, speak of infallibility, we're talking about the original manuscripts, um, oftentimes called the autographs of Scripture. Um, remember Wayne Grudem's definition? So why do you think this is important to, to point out here? Why are we talking um, about original manuscripts? That that was inerrant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That original manuscripts, and those copies were not done under inspiration. Excellent. And therefore, mm-hmm. can and do mm-hmm. contain errors. Yep. It's good. Good. Any other thoughts? It's a good answer. Yeah, Dave. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. Excellent, excellent. Good. So when we talk about inerrancy, we need to know what, we're, what we are talking about. We're talking about the books that are the Bible, right? Those that are inspired. And then the original autographs, the original manuscripts as written by Paul or Luke or David or Moses or Peter or anybody else. Um, that's true. Uh, we do not have any of the original manuscripts. Um, and it's true that we have many, many copies, and these copies all contain errors, right? And so you're thinking, well, there goes the whole doctrine of inerrancy, right? Um, what's, the, what's the point? Uh, we don't have time to go into this subject in detail, but through a process called textual criticism, we can collect thousands and thousands of manuscripts that are available from very early periods. By comparing them and weighing the evidence, we can come to a very, very close um, text that was um, closest to the original. Um, all that to say, we can be very certain that the Bible we hold in our hands um, is very close to the original manuscripts. And there are a few places where there's a lack of certainty. No major doctrine is affected or changed. Um, you can have great confidence in the reliability of the scriptures you possess, and we know that those um, were inerrant. Listen to the Chicago Statement again. They state it very well. They say, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs, the original manuscripts. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. So that's a big topic there. We don't have time to really camp here, but any, any questions? Does that probably opens up a big can of worms for you? Um, any thoughts? Anything you wondering about? Uh, no, they, they would not be original. They would have been written by um, a community of sort of monks living in the wilderness, the Essenes. Um, and uh, they're helpful. They're important. Very important discovery. Uh, but they wouldn't have been original manuscripts, no. Okay. If you'd like to ask questions afterward, I'd be pleased to discuss it. So all that's really introduction um, to clarify what we mean by, by these terms. But ultimately, these are just man-made definitions, and they are not authoritative in themselves. The scriptures are authoritative, right? So I'm giving you these definitions up front, not so we can read them back into scripture, but because they helpfully summarize um, what I think the Bible teaches. And that's what I want to do next, is, is ask the question, does the Bible claim to be inerrant? So I want to give you a few biblical affirmations of this doctrine. Um, and there's many we could go to. Um, I'm going to just give you, give you a handful. Put the first on, on the screen here. 2 Samuel 7, 27 to 29. This is the um, Davidic covenant. God's just given David, made this covenant with him. David prays for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation. God has revealed something, the Davidic covenant, to your servant, 
saying, I will build you a house. Verse 28, and now, O Lord, you are God. Here it is. He's God. And your words are true. Referring to the covenant he's just made. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Verse 29, he says, For you, O Lord, have spoken. It's rooted in the person and the being of, of God. You've spoken it, therefore they are true. Okay? Psalm 119. Go there with me. Go to Psalm 119. <clears throat> Verses one, verse 160. Psalm 119, 160. Can somebody read that? Psalm 119, 160. Amen. Thank you. The sum of your word is truth. The word sum here implies the totality of God's written word. So the first line emphasizes the totality of it, the, the sum total. You add it all together, equals truth. Look at the second line. First line is the sum total of it. The second line, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. First line, we get the sum total of it. The second line, we get each individual part of it. The law, the statutes, the commandments, the ordinances, all the things that Psalm 119 tell us about. The idea is that the sum total of Scripture, when added together, equals absolute reliable truth in all of its parts. If even one part of Scripture were not true, this verse would be wrong. The sum total would not be truth. Parts of it would, but not all of it. Look back at verse 43 of Psalm 119. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. It's the word of truth. My hope is in your rules. Look at that reliance. Because it's truth, we can rely on it. My hope is in your rules, the individual rules, plural. Look over at verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever, which is character, and your law, singular, the sum total of it, your law is true. It's true, it's reliable, it's faithful. It doesn't mislead. Verse 151, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments, each one of them are true. That is the view of the author of Psalm 119 of the Old Testament Scripture. Go over to Proverbs chapter 30. Going to hear from Mr. Agur again. Remember we heard from him back during the necessity of Scripture. Remember, Agur, he uh, despaired of his failed pursuits of wisdom he probably um, was a Gentile convert to Judaism. We don't know too much about him, but it seems that he attempted to get wisdom, 
through his pagan teachers. He failed, and he, he, he laments his failure in verse 4. Who's gone to heaven and come down? The only way you could have knowledge and wisdom is if someone's gone up to the realm of God and brought that down, but no one has, right? Nobody can do that. But it has come in one way. Look at the very end of verse 4. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. His name is Yahweh. And he has revealed it in the Scriptures. His son's name, in this context, it's not Jesus. He's not given a Christological statement. It's Israel, the people who's received what his revelation. What I want to bring your attention to, though, is verse 5. Look what he says. Look where he goes now. Where is this revelation that God and God alone can bring? Where is it to be found? Verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. That is a quotation from Psalm 18.30. In other words... Agur is saying that God and God alone can reveal truth, and he has done it in written scripture of which the Psalms are part. What's significant is that he selects this verse. Look what it says. Every word of God. Notice there again. Every word. Down to the individual word, the smallest detail. Jesus said the same thing, right? Sermon on the Mount. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law. Down to the smallest detail. Every word, this verse says, of God proves true. Now, who has a KJV? What is that? What does it say in KJV? Every word of God, what? It's pure? Okay. Who has the NIV? No NIV people in here? Okay, good. It's flawless. I like that translation. Every word of God is flawless. The root of this word um, is used for the method of melting and refining metals, precious metals, gold, silver. Um, and the word refers to the metal after the process has been completed. It's completely without impurity um, altogether. Listen to Psalm 12:6. same word. The words of the Lord are pure words. They're flawless, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Agur says that every word of God is without even the slightest bit of impurity, with the slightest chance of being wrong, unreliable, or inaccurate. It's a reflection of God's very, very person. Okay, go to John. Chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 35. John 10, 35, Jesus is talking to the the Jews. They're ready to stone him. Look what he appeals to here. Um, Verse 35 Verse 34, he answered them, is not written in your law, referring to all of Old Testament scripture, I said you are gods. Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? This is a difficult passage. We're not going to get into what does Jesus mean here? Who are these gods? Um, I just want to focus on this, this parenthetical phrase that Jesus gives. The scripture cannot be broken. This would have been common ground between him and the Jews. And they're ready to stone him. And Jesus is saying, you have a choice. Either the scripture is wrong or I am right. We are inseparable from one another. Um, the scripture cannot be broken. It was common ground. That's what he is forcing on them to deal with. What does this mean? The scripture cannot be, be broken. Um, it means the scripture cannot fail. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be proven to have been false. Um, scripture, because it is scripture, cannot err in its claims or even its words. Um, so this would be the doctrine of infallibility. You see that? Christure, uh, scripture cannot be broken. What's really interesting is Jesus' whole argument hinges on the use of a single word in the Psalms, right? I said you are gods. That's it. One word. So this whole argument is built on. This is high regard for the Old Testament Scripture down to the very word. And because it's so certain, we can put high degree of weight and reliance on it. One more. Go over to John 17. John 17, 17. Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word refers to the word of the Father. And Jesus has come to speak the word of the Father. It represents the entirety of everything Christ has spoken in his earthly ministry. And we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus placed his words on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. So this term, your word, encompasses everything in the word of God. Your word is truth. There it is. It is not just true. It is truth. It's the ultimate standard. It's the measure by which we evaluate everything else. It is truth. Perfectly reflects reality. We could go to a number of other places. John 16 talks about the apostles will be led by the Holy Spirit into truth. And then a few few other texts. Let me show you this one here by Paul in Galatians 3.16. Paul doesn't base his argument on a single word. He does it on a single letter. Um, Promises were made to Abraham to his offspring. Does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Um, the amount of weight Paul and Jesus put on the smallest detail of Scripture, they're pure. They cannot err. Um, they're infallible. That's just a sampling. We could go to a number of other texts which claim this about itself. Questions? Comments? Okay. Let's go on to the next um, thing I want to talk about really quick is to give some clarification about what we are not saying. Um, what are we are not, what is not being claimed by the doctrine 
of inerrancy. Um, So we just said what it is, what the Bible claims for itself. But inerrancy is one of those extra-biblical words. So if you were with us in week one of systematic theology, we talked about systematic theology uses extra-biblical words, and they're helpful. They help to summarize and bring together complex biblical truth into a a word or a statement. Um, But with that comes the, the danger that we can import our own ideas of what inerrancy means or what it should mean and force that onto the biblical text and force it to do something that it never intended to do. Um, so I want to give you a, a few of, of these here. First thing that we can say that inerrancy does not mean, inerrancy does not refer to maximal precision. It does not refer to maximal precision. The Bible claims to be true, accurate, and reliable, but it never claims maximal precision. Um, Now, these two overlap, precision and and truth. Um, Something that is precise is necessarily true. So a measurement down to the one-thousandth of an inch is very precise, right? And because it is precise, it is true. Um, And something that is true must necessarily be precise to some degree, right? But that degree... How precise does it need to be in order to be true? That's determined by context. That's determined by the goal and the purpose of communication. So let me give you an example. In science or math or engineering, these fields use highly technical and precise levels of of measurements. To be off even one one one-thousandth of a degree can result in some major problems, right? That would be an error. Um, But often, other areas of life require much less precision to be be true and not to be misleading. So if somebody comes and asks me my age, um, I would not respond by saying I'm 33 years old and 7 months and 25 days and 4 hours and, and 29 seconds, right? And even that wouldn't be maximally precise, right? I could add milliseconds in there, and you could keep, you could keep going. Um, in other words, if someone says something like that, you, you would probably think they have an issue, right? And you, you'd probably come out at the end not even sure what age they were, right? They, they, they've stifled the communication with all of this extra information that you don't need. Um, so the context determines the amount of precision that, that you need. Um, what might be error in one situation is not error in, in another my wife might ask me how much money I spent on, on my new books. And I might tell her, $100. They were $97.50. But I didn't lie to her. It's not an error because she wasn't expecting that uh, precision. But if I was a clerk at a bookstore and it rang up $97.50 and I told them it was $100, I would have defrauded them of $2.50. You see, the context determines the amount of precision that is necessary. In other words, just because the Bible doesn't give us every single detail in every case does not make it an error or misleading. It doesn't communicate all the information because it's unnecessary. It would detract from the main purpose. It's normal communication. We do this all the time. So it's not an error when the Bible says that 10,000 died in battle when it was maybe 9,995 or when it says Jesus fed 5,000 men 
when it probably wasn't exactly 5,000 men, you see? Um, it's not an error. It wasn't intending to, and it doesn't need to um, for, the, for that purpose. John Frame here says, Inerrancy, therefore, means that the Bible is true, not that it's maximally precise. To the extent that precision is necessary for truth, the Bible is sufficiently precise. But it does not always have the amount of precision that some readers demand of it. It has a level of precision sufficient for its own purposes, not for the purposes for which some readers might employ. So let me give you some examples now of places in the Bible um, where it is said to have error or be in in error. Um, There's no error at all. The first one is confusion of biblical narrative with history in the modern sense. Modern histories aim at providing an ordered account of the details, the dates, the persons, the events surrounding a certain period of time. It's very scientific in its process. Biblical narratives were not written that way. That's not how they did things back then. Um, there's often gaps of time in the narrative. Um, especially in the Gospels, events are out of order. They're topically arranged sometimes. They're arranged by geography. Um, they're not in order. Um, sometimes they give us very few details about a person or an event. But none of this is error because the biblical writers were not intending to compose a history in the modern sense of the discipline of, of, of history, according to modern standards. They were writing redemptive history. They were not aiming to give every detail. They were aiming about teaching God's work of redemption, what he was accomplishing, how he was doing it. Um, but that being said, while they were writing redemptive history, they were also writing redemptive history. You can go off on either side of this. Some people say, well, it's just redemptive history, so it's not historically accurate. No, no, no. The Bible also gives us history. Um, it's not according to modern standards, but it is reliable in its historical details. So think of the book of Daniel. When we went through that um, about last year, I think, Pastor Farrell, how accurate it is, down to its historical details, so much so that people want to reject it for how Accurate it is. Um, it couldn't have been written by, by Daniel. Um, so that's the first way people charge the Bible with, with error. Um, confusion of biblical narrative with, with history in the modern sense. Here's another one. The use of free quotations by various authors. Again, the issue here is imposing a modern standard on the Bible, which at that time wasn't, wasn't there. Um, when we write a paper, we have to be careful to quote whoever we're quoting exactly right and footnote it and document the source and, and everything. Um, it's not how they wrote back then. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they quote Jesus and his teaching. Oftentimes their words differ from each other. They're not exactly the same. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He traveled around. He preached similar things at multiple places. But it's also because it's not wrong to paraphrase somebody. It's not wrong to take their words and to recommunicate them. Uh, we do that all the time. Um, and so that was um, what they're doing. It does not reduce the truthfulness or accuracy of the words. 
And then you add on top of that the fact that the Holy Spirit is behind them influencing their writings to guarantee that they get it exactly right. Um, This is not an error. Another way. Pre-scientific phenomenological statements in, in the Bible. The common example here is the sun rose. We all know the sun doesn't rise. It rotates on its axis as it orbits around the sun. Um, That's clearly an error. Um, Well, no, and obviously this was not all that precise scientific um, terminology and how this worked wasn't known by the people at that time. But even still, it's not misleading. It's not error. Because the Bible and these statements are not intending to be a science textbook. Right? This is ordinary communication. It's not intending to make an explanation whether we're heliocentric or whether we're geocentric. It's not even thinking about that. It's communicating to ordinary people in an ordinary way at a certain time. Um, God does not err when he stoops down to speak to us at our level. Um, John Calvin said that it's like a mother who lisps to her child. Right? That, that's how God often speaks to us. He comes down and speaks to us in human ways. Um, it's not error. He's not intending to make a statement. Um, Wayne Grudem said, God can use human language to speak without affirming any false ideas that may have been held by people at that point in time. There's a number of other instances we could, we could give here, uh, but they all come down to this basic point. The Bible is inerrant, and that it accurately conveys information according to its own purposes. And we should not force the Bible to say more or less than it intends to say. Here's the statement on biblical inerrancy again. They say, we affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to the standards of truth and error, that are alien to its usage and purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena, such as lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, that's what we just talked about, reporting of falsehoods, um, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citation. So that's what we mean. The scriptures are inerrant. They're without mistake. They're completely true, down to the smallest detail. They're infallible. They're unable to do it because they're the words of God. Um, And because of this, they're authoritative. They have the ability to bind our consciences. They have the ability to tell us and demand what we believe and what we think and how we behave. Um, And they're able to do that perfectly and truly because of the nature of their very words. So that is what we mean by inerrancy. Um, The scriptures are inerrant. um, And it's also what we don't mean. Now we come to a final question here. What are the scriptures authoritative for? So we just said that they're inspired, so they're authoritative. And they're inspired, and so they're inerrant, and so they're authoritative. But what are they authoritative for? First thing I want to point out here is it's not limited to faith and practice. Um, You've probably heard people say that the Bible is authoritative for faith and practice, and that's true. 
Um, it is authoritative for faith and practice. It is authoritative to tell us what to believe, how to believe, how we should live and conduct our lives. Um, but it is not limited to that. Oftentimes when people say it's, it's authoritative for, for faith and practice, they're, they're, just, they're saying that the Bible is authoritative for spiritual matters, but nothing more than that. Um, the Bible can tell you how to live like a Christian and how to go to heaven and how to be saved, but it's not authoritative for anything beyond that. Um, for instance, in matters of science or history, the Bible cannot be used as an authority because it just wants to teach you about those spiritual things. And that is, is, is not correct. Um, we've already said that the Bible is not intending to be a science book or a history book, so we shouldn't, shouldn't misuse it there. Um, but nevertheless, its claims are flawless and accurate, down to its words and its intended usage. Um, and while the Bible does tell us much about spiritual reality, that is its main purpose and goal, it also tells us many things that are important for history. It gives us historical details, doesn't it? It gives us things that are relevant for science, doesn't it? Um, and all of these details are true and reliable. In other words, nowhere does the Bible restrict itself only to the spiritual realm. Um, as creatures, we have no right to tell God what he can and cannot tell us about. Um, he is God. We can't tell him what he can and cannot touch. Now, the Bible makes historical claims. The Bible makes claims about the origin of the universe. And those claims are true and authoritative. And they're the standard by which we measure everything else. Listen again to the Chicago Statement here. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, and deceit. We deny that biblical inerrancy and infallibility are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. That does not mean that scientific research or historical research is unimportant or unhelpful for a student of the Bible. It's very important. It's very helpful um, it doesn't mean that we might not learn from this research. Um, it couldn't be helped to understanding the Bible better. Um, oftentimes, research forces us back deeper into the Bible. Do we really understand what the Bible is claiming here? Um, it just means that what the Bible teaches cannot be proven false by this research. When there's a contradiction, we go with the Bible. And it's just incredible the, the, the fear and the lack of trust people have in the in, in, the, in the Bible, some archaeologist comes out saying, well, we've never discovered the Hittites before, so they must not even exist. The Bible's false. And people are afraid, and we go with them as though they know and have discovered everything there's possibly to discover in archaeology. And then a few decades later, hey, we discovered that there was actually some people called, called the Hittites. Um, this brings us back to the finitude of, of man, um, how quick we are to, to go to scholarship and, and research as soon as it's ready to tear down the Bible. Again, it's helpful. It's useful. But when there's a contradiction, we go with the Bible. Um, there's a lot more we could, could say under this, under this point here. I want to give some time for, for questions. So this is what we mean. 
Answer the question, what are the Scriptures authoritative for? We say the Bible is authoritative for everything about which it speaks. Sounds a little bit redundant, but whatever it purposes to tell us, that's what it's authoritative for. It's not just for spiritual matters, but for everything God wants us to know. Wayne Grudem said, it is better to say that the whole purpose of Scripture is to say everything that it does say on whatever subject. Um, So that's the authority of the Bible and uh, how we should rightly relate to it. Um, In closing, I want to give us some, some implications just practically. How should this be affecting us uh, in our lives? Um, any questions, comments, thoughts that you want to share before we move on? Does it make sense? Is it clear? Understand? Okay. So you tell me. How should this affect us? What are some implications? So what? This is the so what, okay? Bible's inerrant. It's infallible. Great. Got some information. No. How should we change? What, should, what does that mean for our lives? It's authoritative. What does that mean for our, for our lives? right. That's great. Excellent. Yep. When you have an inerrant Bible, you have truth. That brings us back to the true truth. You only have truth, the standard by which you evaluate everything else, objective truth, what's really there, only if it's true in its every detail, right? It can't be reliable if it's, if it's not. So that's good, Craig. See a hand over here? One? Yeah. That's right. Amen. Yep. There should be a, a settled confidence and a rest. And I had that written down. Be on guard against just fear. Do you, do you fear that one day the scientific discovery or some historical discovery is going to come and it's going to disprove the Bible? Um, you, you shouldn't. You, you rest here. And again, take us back to what I said earlier. It should drive us closer into the Bible, deeper into the Bible. So in the Middle Ages, when everyone thought we were geocentric, right, and not heliocentric, we didn't revolve around the sun, they made proof texts to the Bible, and those scientific discoveries, they didn't contradict the Bible, they drove us deeper into it. What does the Bible really say here? And it comes, the Bible isn't making a claim about that at all. Um, so, again, those discoveries are important, they're helpful to force us to Scripture, but ultimately, um, we rest with Scripture. Um, and uh, should be confident, confident. It's the word of God. God cannot err. Um, so rest there. Anything else? Yeah. It should be the lens by which you look at everything else going on around you and in your world. Mm. In other words, if somebody gets up and they do a podcast and say, we can bring peace to the world mm. and make everything peaceful and feed everybody mm. and all these different things, you need to look at that through the scriptures. Amen. 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 Exactly right. Yep. 
That is that biblical worldview. So again, we're constructing systematic theology, not just to be eggheads, but so we can have lenses that have been made clear and accurate through which we're viewing, viewing life. And this is, this is 101 of systematic theology. So we can do just that. Ed. It's really good. Yes, Mark. Mark Hager's line, call it what God calls it to get what God gives it. Um, don't settle with superficial man-made labels. Um, God's labels are inerrant. And they are very effective and uh, much more helpful. So, that's good. Your thoughts, questions, comments, implications? Let me give you a couple here. I don't know if I have them. Yes. Denial of the doctrine of inerrancy has massive consequences. And this is where we began. Um, it's not one of those doctrines that you can just, just toss out. Ultimately, it's not necessary for salvation, like we talked about, um, but it's vital for the Christian life. Um, the Bible's a human book. It was written by people. It's also a divine book written by, by God. Um, and to charge it with error because it's, it's human is not just to deny some, some portions in it, it's to undermine the whole, because it claims to be God's word. This is not a nitpicky doctrine about things the Bible doesn't, doesn't care about. It's the foundation for all those other large things. Um, and ultimately, it affects our Christology, who Christ is, because he was also truly man, right? And he was also truly God. But to attribute errors to him in his humanity, that has massive consequences, right, on the Christian life. Christ claimed to speak the very words of the Father. He claimed to be the very incarnation of the truth. Um, but if he was in error, that means he was not God. And if he was in error, it means he was a liar, and there could be no redemption for any of us if either of those were true, owing to his humanity. And the same is true of of the Bible. Um, massive consequences if we reject this doctrine. Number two, examine how you relate to the Bible. Um, so we discussed, don't fear um, the one day dreaded scientific discovery that's going to come. Rest here. This is the Word of God. Um, and that confidence is going to grow. The more of it that you study, the more of it that you learn, the more of it that you allowed to form and change and shape your life. Next week, we're going to talk about an apology for Scripture, a defense. So we've been assuming the Bible's the Word of God this whole time. The question next comes, how do we know it's the Word of God? It claims to be. How do we know that's the case? And that's where we're going to, um, what we're going to tackle next, next week. So that, that confidence will, will grow. If you're a believer, that's what you affirm. You've submitted to the Lordship of Christ through His Word. Last thing I want to say, if, if all this is really true, if you really believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, what would it look like in your life? Um, so let me give you a few, few realms here. If you really believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, how would that change the way you came to church on Sunday? How would it change the way you prepared to come to church? How would it change the way that you listened to a sermon? What do you think? <clears throat> you really believed 
Every word, every detail. It's the word of God and pure, flawless. Should that change anything? You would give it the attention it deserves. You would give the attention it deserves. Yep. Pastor Farrell uses that catcher illustration. You lean in. Um, doesn't matter who it is that's preaching, whether it's someone like Pastor Farrell or someone bumbling like myself. You, you lean in. This is the word of God coming through a frail, weak vessel, right? Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. So this excitement, joy, anticipation, there's glory here. Um, also a sense of dread, of trembling, like we saw, you fear, you tremble at the word. It's good. What else? How should it change the way that I come to church? How I prepare to come to church? Say, Sunday morning begins Saturday night, right? You're going to prepare your heart. I'm getting ready to hear the words of the living God tomorrow. Um, I want to be ready. I want to be accurate. I want to be prepared so I don't miss anything. This is vital, right? Vital so I can have those lenses through which I can view life. All of life is at stake here. Good. How would it change your parenting? If you really believed it was inerrant, if you really believed it was inspired and authoritative for your life, how would it change your, your parenting? Yeah, yep, wouldn't be so quick to grab anything we can to help us, yep. Yes? That's right. Amen, amen. That is the main goal. Um, I want them to know the scripture and to love it. Um, what does God say about this situation? This past summer, we did a study through the little book by Lou Priolo um, in our Sunday school class called Teach Them Diligently. Has anyone read Teach Them Diligently in here? I know the Koinonia people. It's an excellent book. Uh, very short. Get it. Uh, it's for parenting. Um, he talks about we, we use the scriptures in the milieu of, of parenting, in the course of life, and you everything that you encounter in life, you're, you're, you're always drawing lines to, to scripture, and I've been trying to cultivate this in, in my parenting. It's it relates to everything. I want them to think, connect, Bible here with every, with every issue um, in life. You don't just sit down and do family devotions. You should do that. But the Bible permeates um, everything. Good. Anything else? How else should this be affecting your life? If you really believe the Bible is inerrant, if you really believed it was authoritative um, for all of life, not just parts of it. That's right. Amen. Amen. It is the reason we do exposition. Uh, it's the foundation. These doctrines is what drives it. And uh, does it mean that we can be sloppy and read something into little individual words that don't mean it? You're right. We have to have good hermeneutics. What does this word mean? What's the point of this word? Um, point is, though, is it's inerrant down to that level. It's important down to that level. So. Anything else? Jim? Yeah. Hmm. Amen. First place you go. It's good. 
And often when we have an issue, we don't know where to go, right? So that's where uh, faithful shepherds and brothers and sisters come alongside one another. Use the Bible in your discipleship and, and helping. Amen. All right. There's nothing else. I will close this in prayer. Any other thoughts? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your pure, flawless, inerrant word. Um, I thank you for preserving it um, in the form that it is now so we can rest with great confidence in what we have. Um, it's accurate. It's true to reality. Um, confess my sin of fear, of unbelief, so quick um, to deny your word um, in the face of a culture that laughs at it, um, that elevates itself up above it as though it's smarter or knows more. Um, help us be faithful. Um, just to trust it. Help us to use it as the lenses through which we evaluate all of life. Help us to get to know it, to eat the scripture, to swim in it, to um, be more and more people of your word. We thank you for this gift. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray for this week. You would come with us, Lord. And um, Lord, you would, you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.